You know, it's it's the it's the immersion into art, and, and in particularly, uh, and in particular, um, it is it is the art that you would look at, let's say, on a wall. Let's say it's a colored pencil rendering. Let's say it's of a um, a, a, a Western landscape. Uh, let's say it is um, it is a reddish uh, strata of uh, thousand foot cliffs um, and ridges, uh, time worn uh, by uh, past rivers uh, and uh, rivers of huge width and breadth that would raging waters that could have only done the landscaping with the help of wind, of course. Let's not forget the wind, uh, which does its, its share. But these were past rivers. And now we see a, uh, a, a, gorge, a gorged set of uh, which can only really be described as monumental erosional uh, leave behinds and remnants uh, and then against a, a beautiful blue uh, but cloudy sky um, and especially down toward the horizon it's a colored pencil representation and Immerse yourself. Stare at a little bit of a distance um, and look at the picture, but probe it. You know, kind of like just really, sometimes it might be difficult to concentrate like that, and, but then you can focus and concentrate. And you notice the color, uh, the light. Um, and the beauty of nature through this representation, rather detailed, uh, with um, with on on its on its rather uh, modest size uh, uh, canvas, or in this case, uh, board or heavy paper, let's say. So it's the it's the composition, but it's really not. Even that, it's the it's coming into the picture. Really, I think you know when people go to museums. I know when I do, uh, I like to look up close, but I do like to look back and resolve the picture. Um, there is a set distance. I don't know if it's fifteen feet or ten feet. Um, I would say ten feet is a good uh, a good distance to view a picture. Uh, and and then and then come in on it, but you know, try to just um, not worry about that so much. Um, come into it so that you see it, um, and you could be part of it. You could kind of be part of the picture. Um, it's kind of a unique thing that happens in museums. It's not even really like intellectual. It's really elemental. You know, um, it goes back to the cave paintings on the walls and in the caves of France. Um, 
It goes back even before that. Uh, it's representation. So whether it's whether it's oils, um, whether it's acrylic, uh, any any real medium, um, in in this uh, in this visual uh, uh, representation of landscape. Um, and in this case, magnificent landscape captured in a, a modest size format. Framing helps, but the picture is the boss. The picture rules the day. You know, a frame can really dress up everything, right? Um, and, you know, it's a nice gift to give someone a frame. Uh, and, uh, and people put in everything different in frames and uh, I look at at a frame pi picture that looks it's a nice way to to sort of uh, present the the art piece and it is an art piece and it should be admired uh, any effort any effort um, I mean we admire child's representations when we go to the uh, PTA meeting uh, and look at all the kids, uh, 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 third grade kids' drawings and representations, how pure they are, um, how, how, um, how truly Grandma Moses-style primitive they are, uh, how fresh they are. We could really study, and I know there's been studies on, on, on paintings from, from young, young people, and... Um, they all show they remarkably a certain level of of um, of artistic ability. It's actually it's actually pretty amazing because it comes pure from the heart. Uh, I know when I was drawing in school, I I wouldn't have drawn. I drew impulsively during class. I was fiddling, doing lettering, um, and I couldn't see myself really trying to sit still in that sense. Um, I'm sure there were attentive moments uh, with the pen down, but generally I was trying to evade the, the nun or the teacher uh, to, not, to make me low-key uh, and uh, just try to be in my own little world, but still vaguely eking out um, what's going on in the environment as far as instruction. So um, I kudos to the teachers because they got through to me somehow. I uh, ended up with a very decent education overall. Um, and uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's pretty cool. The nuns, the nuns were really wonderful um, facilitators facilitators um, they each had their own unique personalities you know uh, there was always the young cute nun that kind of like scampered into the school building um, and then immediately getting the class in order because she's very efficient at the same time and then there's the then there's the uh, there's the older uh, uh, there's the older uh, nun 
Um, and then the mother superior might come in. Um, and she is, uh, the, she'll come in and maybe supervise the class in a nice way, generally. Strict nuns, yes, uh, certainly those, but certainly kind of, uh, if not mellow, they were uh, certainly, um, uh, certainly easy kind of going people. Um, and mostly young women, mostly young nuns then, uh, when I was growing up. Uh, I was so lucky to catch that tail end, really. Essentially, it was, it was a tail end kind of a thing going on. Uh, even then, I think. Maybe not then. That might have been, I think, the peak and the pinnacle of, um, of you know, a, a, a convent... Uh, uh, and then the school, and then the church, um, and we we had that whole mix. So we had the school, uh, we had the flag up on the pole, um, and then we have um, the radiator going uh, full steam ahead and keeping us warm and comfortable, really. Um, and then um, and then on with instruction and then um on with me grabbing my pad from my desk and immediately starting to do doodling i guess you would call it um and i was basically uh doing that throughout most of the class how i got away with all the drawings i did i wish i kind of had saved them you know it would have been really a cool thing you know think about that um, you know, all the drawings you've done as a kid, let's say, in a certain time frame. You know, maybe you'd like to have those in your hand and actually physically be touching them again and seeing and seeing what you did, you know? It would be really kind of cool. And I kind of know, I kind of know what I did. I did a lot of lettering. I did a lot of balloon-style lettering of the 70s, uh, kind of hippie. <clears throat> connected letters, but fat, fat letters. Uh, I liked fat letters. I liked the that kind of um, way to do it. And then I gravitated to maybe a little more sophisticated ways of doing it. But the big deal was the big balloon dimensional lettering of the of the of the seventies. It all it's it's a boldness uh, in your face. Um, and kind of like the hip time that we could only define our time through this type of lettering, essentially. Um, and then you had, you know, you had Cooper. Cooper was so 70s. You know, think of Mary Tyler Moore. That's Cooper, the font. Um, and it, it is a font that, uh, that's not, no, i sorry, that is not Cooper. Um, there are so many examples of Cooper. Mary Tyler Moore is a font that I have to remember what that font was, but I know what it is. I'll try to remember that font. Um, but the uh, the Cooper, uh, you know, is is an example of our way of doing it. Kind of balloony, controlled, um, uniform. Uh, kind of very readable, 
uh, but very iconic of the era. So uh, Cooper would work today, but it would evoke um, those that era certainly, and it does. Uh, but it's still it's still a viable font. Um, it's it's legible. Uh, it's a it's a it's a good it's a good clean advertising font, generally. Um, yeah. So, uh, but the balloon lettering I would do the I did buses. I was into city uh, Greyhound buses back then, and I did my own representations. I kind of I guess I updated them. I thought I made some pretty cool buses um, that 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 were usually the full uh, view of it. Um, and so I did a lot of buses. Uh, I did a lot of shoes. I was into shoes. I could have been a shoe designer, I guess, if I had kept going, certainly, because I did a lot of profiles, basically, of shoes, uh, boots. Um, uh, yeah, I did that, and I, I was really into it. Um, but lettering, I guess I gravitated to lettering early on. And I always was, um, I had a stamp set. Uh, I love that stamp set. Real simple stamp with some some letters in it, or maybe the whole alphabet, I would imagine. It was a, had a your standard ink pad and your rubber stamp. And then you had a different stamp for each letter. And I used to like lining everything up really neat. Um, and, um, and all the letters had to be kind of like really look neat. And then typewriter enthralled me. I was, I was totally into the idea of typing and typewritering, typewriting. And I liked the, I liked the carriage return. I liked the bell. I liked the whole thing, whether it was a big, big, uh, office heavy cast iron affair that looked like a radiator um, and very, very, mm, it's a machine, right? Um, and it weighs about 100 pounds uh, and it's on the desk blotter and someone's going to have to remove that later on to make room for normal desk writing. But this desk, this, this royal let's say, this royal typewriter, right? The office typewriter of the 40s circa and the 50s, uh, certainly. And then you have the portable typewriter. Um, I had a couple of them. I liked them. Um, Stuck keys was always a problem. Uh, I wasn't great on um, typing, but I did make sure I cleared out my E's, especially from the lint that would build up on the key, on the letters uh, that you use the most, especially like O's and E's, um, you know. And so uh, with those challenges aside, you eked out a neat letter. And I learned to let to learn the lesson of neat typewritten letters. And I uh, kind of like, um, I worked toward that. Um, uh, already a way of kind of like getting me getting into communications, which was kind of cool. The idea of um, kind of like uh, on the page, uh, you know, uh, pre-published manuscript. <laughs> no, no, uh, just basically a, a a form letter or a direct letter, pretend letter. I did a lot of pretend things. We did a lot of pretend things growing up.
um, my brothers and sisters and I, uh, certainly. And everything was really a pretend kind of thing. I had a plastic phone I loved. It looked like a touch, like you'd actually like a, the yearly touch-tone phones, which was so cool. And it had buttons that were pretty cool uh, and kind of almost realistic. Um, but it was a plastic toy phone, and I used that as my phone, and um, we've all been there. So we have all these lovely kind of like um, distractions um, to get us uh, even physically, haptically involved with our experience, um, a whole experience of growing up, certainly our interaction with our environment, but also the props we make, the props we make. Um, I can make numerous stories of the setups that we had to involve with uh, and then get going. It was, it was also that kind of euphoria of coming home from the beach, let's say, uh, and then knowing you can ride your bike later in the day because there's still about another uh, four hours of daylight. Um, and then you, you get home and you do go for the... You do actually make a beeline for the, clo- for the, for the bike, you know, and with still being sandy from the beach. Uh, and it's it's just a, a beautiful uh, uh, early uh, late afternoon, and there's still plenty of time to get your whole um, uh, experience in, which involves your bike. Everything centers around your bike. Uh, we lived, breathed, ate bikes. We fixed our own bikes. Uh, my dad, I'm, I know. There are times where my dad helped us um, with our bikes. Um, our neighbors helped us with our bikes. We got stuck with our bikes uh, somewhere with a flat tire. We had to kind of like solve that problem. Um, and then we went to the candy store on our bikes. Uh, we went around the block on our bikes and watched the street sweepers work and the busy main street that you live near. And then you came back down to your quieter section, um, and you, you came in the driveway and turned around, made a slight turn into your garage, and then you uh, proceeded to park your bike with your, with your kickstand. And the kickstand was a great urban invention, you know, um, so it was good to have that, but you had to watch out with hot tar on that kickstand, because it would just sink right into the tar, so we control that, and then uh, we had our um, cards flapping, our baseball cards, our Batman cards, our wacky pack cards, whatever collecting cards we had. And then uh, we had fresh cards we could put on after the one got worn out and didn't make a flap noise anymore. And we kept it, maybe. Or maybe we threw the card away. Uh, The beginning of the disposable generation. Um, And um, so we had that kind of, like... uh, We had that kind of uh, uh, cool setups with our bicycles. Um, Uh... both wheels had the card with the clothespin, and we 
placed that strategically so it flapped. You know, that was the end thing, flapping right down the road, you know. Uh, and then you had, um, you had um, bikes that got greasy and dirty and grimy, and you had to contend with that. You had to maintain your wheels, um, and you had to develop sort of like disciplines around enjoying your bicycle. There were just uh, kind of apparent things that you had to always be aware of. Uh, safety wasn't as big of a factor, but everybody wanted to be safe. So we were all careful. Um, and, and then we, we were good bike riders. Um, my dad taught me. I remember my dad uh, pushing me uh, around, and, and I had such joy when I finally found out in the parking lot of New York Lace Store in Woodlawn, um, uh, finding out at the age of, uh, relatively late age of probably six or seven, um, and um, I finally knew how to ride a bike, and it was so awesome. And my dad celebrated with me. It was a joyful experience. A joyful experience. Um, a day I'll never, never, ever forget. Um, and I, um, I now was adept, uh, for the most part, at, at riding a bike miraculously. Miraculously. I was the latest to really ride a bike. Um, and uh, of our group, of our family. I was the latest to um, experience the joy, really, of, ri of, of riding a bicycle. Uh, I, liked the, my, I liked my fire engine cars um, that we had. Um, I liked my little pedal um, fire engine cars and my little pedal... I loved my pedal go-kart. It was classic go-kart. Um, and I liked all of my pedal toys. Um, we all had them. It was a busy driveway uh, with the hazards along the way, although we were, in, we were in pretty safe vehicle compartments for the most part. Um, and then these things were built back then like brick shithouse, you know, 18-gauge steel on these puppies, really sturdily built uh, pedal cars. And, and you know, we, we, were, we, were, we were not reckless, we were, but we, were, we wanted to, we wanted the velocity involved, we wanted the whole kind of like experience. And, um, you know, uh, uh, we parked our cars and we, we pretended we were, we had a, we, it was a big car like our dads and we were like we had to go to work so we pretended to go to work and then we had to come back and support the family with our work and then already work uh, work was coming into play uh, so childhood development uh, even unattended you know our parents really let us go the ethos of the 60s of bringing up kids in suburban America um, was generally uh, a laissez-faire attitude, I'm told. Uh, I didn't feel that growing up, 
but the modern 60s parent had evolved into someone not with indifference, still with love, but maybe less demonstrative love. And uh, I would imagine most definitely a more stern approach um, to child rearing. Uh, and, and it was probably apparent in the supermarket. Uh, we've become much more lax. I think generally our children are very well behaved. And, um, but you have the straggler. Um, and then you have um, the rebellious uh, child. And how, how do you deal with the rebellious child in the public in the public uh, arena, uh, in the in the train station, in church, uh, the crying baby that won't stop, um, but then is finally calmed, uh, and you're really happy. Uh, you're really happy that uh, that it's quieter. Um, so we have these we have these um, things, and we come back to looking at pictures. And, you know, if it's modern art, if it's, if it's traditional art, whatever floats your boat, um, uh, maybe delve might be a good word, uh, delve into the painting. Um, uh, stare at it, start by staring at it, and then try to, um, try to discover, of course, and try to uh, let things reveal themselves. Um, and whether it's a landscape or a portrait or anything in between and, and, and then you, you can kind of like admire it at the same time and you can um, and revel, revel in what the artist has intended the artist has intended a pure <clears throat> a purity aspect to it um, the artist has come from a purity aspect. Uh, the attentions are all good. Um, it's, it's there to uh, show itself and reveal itself. Um, and it's, it, it will usually, usually succeed. So I'm interested in... Uh, the 60s, particularly the 1960s, uh, network television um, scene. Um, how we all experienced it growing up. Um, uh, the, pr the programs that we remember our mom or dad in particular liking. Um, you know, your mom with her edge of night and her uh, as the world turns... Uh, uh, in black and white and later in color, um, gloriously introduced by uh, in great marketing techniques and usages for a very important innovation, and that was the advent or onset of color television. It intensified our television uh, experience. Many, many people in the 30s, later on in the 40s even, probably wasn't until the Korean War in the early 50s where television started taking a foothold. Um, and then with greater tenacity in the late 50s and certainly into the 60s, well into the 60s. 
Um, our first color television, for example, was a, was a Quasar by Motorola, a good trusted brand back then um, with the auto color correct mode, which you needed back in those analog days um, as far as how you received the signal, how, how the picture looked, basically. Um, sound took a second seat to it. Television shows adapted to that mid-range quality of speakers. There's good projection with, with uh, productions um, and uh, with the score and the incidental music. Very important in the structure of runs across genre. And, uh, and 60s really displayed it. And our consumer culture was in, in total... Uh, rapture and celebration, certainly. Um, you know, before we started really um, hearing what was happening in in Southeast Asia, um, and so before before really those hostilities began, as far as our country was concerned, because um, that had an origin certainly at the tail end of the Korean War. Um, they were already reporting from Vietnam on what was going on in there. Um, and it turned out to be a uh, mostly horrible panoply uh, presented to us in, in total informational, trusted anchorman, traditional 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s values. <clears throat> I'd say that the period of... Um, the period of, uh, of an interesting time in, in, that spanned like three decades, uh, the tail end of which came into quite a dent into the early 80s. So like by 82, 83, um, our, our mores were changing, certainly. Our music was changing. Our art was changing. Uh, technology was advancing um, before everybody had phones and laptops and tablets, um, you know, and the portability aspect of, of your life, really, you know. Um, think about the pain in the ass it would be if you, if you misplaced your phone or lost your phone. Uh, that would be, like, not a good scene, you know. I always feel bad, you know, they, they dug up a lake, they emptied a lake somewhere and they found cell phones, I remember reading somewhere. And it's happened, I'm sure, in many places where um, cell phones would accumulate and that would be like on our lake sides, our piers, you know. Um, there's the young newlywed couple and he's playing with his phone, uh, maybe on a game, you know, before they go out to the hotel room. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, then put their phones on do not disturb. But down in the, down there, their phone is, is, uh, their life continues, right? It's just like expected to see someone glued to their phone, you know, um, doing shit on their phone, doing shit on their phone. And you see it everywhere. And it's, it's actually cool. And I do it. And um, I like the public aspect of it. 
but I think it is a very private thing in a, in a public world. It's sort of a little tension going on there. We want to have a, our own little world on our phones. Um, and it certainly was that, but it wasn't that in the 70, 60s, 70s, and 80s. I don't count the 50s. Um, I don't count the later 80s, mid to later 80s. Uh, analog was replaced by digital in the early 80s, for instance. I had my first um, CD player and I was an early adopter to the technology. It was a very simple, sharp brand, uh, nothing fancy, small, and not expensive, actually, surprisingly cheap at the time, actually. Um, and I got that, and, and it was a, you know, the sound probably, if I played it, wouldn't be the quality of today. It might, I think CDs had a reputation of being harsh, harsh. Um, but they got their, their sea legs on classical recordings came out first on CD, as, make, as should make sense. You know, the important music, the historical music, um, the great music, uh, of course, assuredly. Classical music has always innovated in that direction, in that sort of interesting branch off. And that bounced back with Beatles, uh, with the Beatles recordings of the uh, early 60s, uh, initial albums that came out, uh, produced by George Martin, who came from a classical, certainly a classical, um, real true Englishman, I would imagine. Uh, I imagine he would have been really fair to work with. He seemed like a really good personality kind of guy. Uh, he didn't look like he wanted to take over the world. The Beatles could have taken over the world in 1966, let's say, uh, to pick a year. Um, and I've had, I had close, intimate relation with, um, I must say, with the Beatles. Um, and I listened, we all listened attentively to every song, we played every song. We wore out every album, uh, from from Rubber Soul to uh, to certainly the White Album later on. You know, um, in my daisy crazy days of of uh, la later teens, I discovered them more, uh, more probably towards like fifteen, let's say sixteen. Uh, the Beatles, Abbey Road, but certainly, which I think is my favorite Beatles album. It captures the Beatles to me, Abbey Road. I got to give it a listen because I think it's a masterpiece, a tour de force in a uh, compact format that is the LP. Probably 35 minutes worth of, of music uh, on that. Um, and the albums got, the vinyl technology got more where the, you know, you didn't have as wide a bands at each end of the of the LP, for instance, when you looked at the vinyl, um, and you had good light so you could see all the bands, and the bands got tighter, right? And maybe even the label got more confined, but it might have been a Led Zeppelin album that you took out and played recently, and you discovered that, boy, this is a pretty long, you know, Led Zeppelin four. I'm going to say that might have been a 37, 38 minute, minute um, uh, album uh, and other, other similar albums that were, uh, that maxed out. I think LPs max out at, at like 40 minutes, if that. 
I think you can exhaust 40 minutes out of the, um, out of the vinyl. Um, those tightly packed, amazing grooves, you know. An album is sort of a work of art, you know, and the whole experience of taking out an album, I can picture me doing it now. I think I would revel in a crisp, brand-new album taking out uh, from the plastic, you know, and then um, just taking out that album really carefully, that, that, that vinyl aspect. I always had to look at the vinyl. I was always impressed every record I took out at the newness of it. Uh, the virginity aspect. I don't know what that means, Freudian or otherwise. <laughs> but that's something to think about. But vinyl is was a great experience. We were really lucky to have that haptic, tax, you know, feedback, um, uh, tactile experience with the vinyl format. And it lended itself perfectly to graphic design. Um, and then the, the first concept albums of the late 60s, certainly, heralded by Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Uh, that's the album that's given credit to the birth of the actual concept album, where the lyrics were clearly on the back of the album cover. I remember having to squint my eyes, but it was all there. Uh, and, you know, really kind of like just musical poetry on the page, but a, a great, great album. But... Abbey Road captured it for me. I have good memories of the early 70s. Um, I, we, the picture was a whole drama. Only the Beatles could have created a PR um, masterpiece of execution uh, in the fact that, is Paul dead? You know, what happened to Paul? Like, it's like an elemental question. Like, what happened to the leader of your band, you know? Uh, all of a sudden, he's not... He's being mystified already. He's being, um, he's already being, um, yeah, he's not on of this earth anymore. He's in the white suit, crossing barefoot uh, on, 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 the, on the classic Abbey Road cover. And we all can picture that and relive that image through the music, the great music on the album. Short, pithy uh, songs, all of them. I would call it uh, a multi-hit album, uh, certainly, right down to Maxwell Silver Hammer. Um, we're talking uh, probably the most important musical group, um, and, and it's a recent formulation, but it, it always was sort of apparent. The Beatles have really just influenced everybody. Uh, my favorite groups outside of the Beatles were influenced by the Beatles, and it came from that whole great... Um, kind of um, the Beatles yearning to do the American Appalachian sound uh, with a folk aspect, with lyrical uh, dexterity uh, and pithiness of the pop tune, staying faithful to the pop, A-B-A-B uh, or A-B-A, yeah, A-B-A-B set up. And then you've got harmonies and melodies and you've got, it comes down to George George Martin um, behind the the mixer, be, the rudimentary setup they had back then, uh, recording in London, and then they would be doing their early albums, which were all mega super albums before we even used that word mega, and we didn't even know nothing was on the radar yet as far as let's say more technology. 
uh, for better or worse. We didn't really, we were relishing and certainly reveling in, as I, as I hearkened to earlier, on the whole experience of uh, the 60s technology, you know, the transistor, the revolutionary um, aspects of our decade of the 60s of invention in the spirit of the 1800s, uh, you know, with Alexander Graham Bell. It really was inventive, you know. The telephone was going to be touch tone. It was going to be touch button. It was going to be a ubiquitous fixture. Um, IBM was now becoming established as international business machines. Um, and then you, and it's really now real true business machines, but now early business computers, certainly. Uh, room size computers in the 60s, closet size uh in the in the late 70s let's say and then early 80s development it all happened uh in another revolution started in a garage uh in Palo Alto California i believe uh and it was it was Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak of Apple so Apple Apple has a place in history that way but the Beatles will be the band that will always be talked about, uh, referred to. Um, it also will be, in a musical sense, of course, it'll be an influence, certainly, on, and it will be unabashedly announced, and it should be, uh, by any single band member of any given band that you grew up admiring. Uh, Back then, and then so and then you so you've got a whole big palette, huge uh, invent uh, repertoire of music that you've really accumulated in arena rock. I like arena rock. Uh, Frampton comes alive. Uh, I like live. I like the live experience, but I also like the intimacy of the studio with all its um, technology that it brings to that party. Uh, and we always had the acoustic album, we always had the electric album, we always had the recorded studio, in-studio produced album for the most part. And then we got experimental, right? You know, I know R.E.M. was experimental. They certainly were. Um, they stand out to me as the innovative band um, of, uh, of talented Musicians, the music was a la, a la Beatles, I think. Um, but there's so many great examples of uh, how the Beatles, in a wonderful kind of way, uh, you know. And then, and then George went, George went with John uh, to India, and uh, they all went to to the ma, ma, the the. Um, uh, the Maharishi, or the they they played the sitar, they they plucked instruments, they experimented, um, uh, they experimented with their minds. Um, I'm sure uh, they were uh, just uh, trendsetting. Um, they were um, uh, they were on every magazine cover. Uh, they had huge following and fan clubs already established. 
the eugenicity, the, the eugenists of the whole experience. And we were part of it growing up in our little corner of, uh, of uh, Pawtucket, um, experiencing it and um, kind of living the Beatles vicariously through them, um, whether it was through their motion picture adventures, um, essentially um, rock and roll musicals, of course, um, in, in a, with a British mindset, which we were long introduced to. There was always a British actor on cross-genre, of course, again. There was always a British actor um, in, in these, in these um, comedies, dramas. Uh, we had a big uh, cross-pollination of culture exchange um, that we still enjoy today with Britain. Uh, and we also have good exchanges with other countries, but with P Britain in particular, uh, Britain is like, I don't know, it's kind of can be compared to, uh, like, um, I thought of like what St. Paul is to Minneapolis, let's say. Um, and, but, you know, uh, enough, you know, so much for the urban scale, um, I think, yeah, I think I think you've got a great relationship with that we've really enjoyed um, for many generations, and and that's between ourselves and Great Britain. Um, and then um, you know, so whether you're living in Wales, uh, you know, or whether you're living uh, whether you're living in London. Uh, whether you're living in uh, New York City, uh, whether you're living in Des Moines, uh, whether you're on the cornfields of America, or in the in the let's say um, the streets, the uh, the streets and atmosphere um, of experiencing London, let's say. So I like. I like those comparisons, and I think those comparisons and those kind of relationships that we've fostered, um, like two countries really exchanging culturally in, in a free, in a free, unfettered, or uncensored, uh, as it should be, um, uh, sort of trading environment. You know, cultural trade, trading, cultural, um, cultural. Um, uh, mixing cultural influencing. We influenced them. They influenced us. Um, we've always we've always admired and taken in uh, British tradition and reinvented us in a, in a unique American way. The real core traditions that we hold can have its early roots in Britain and in other empires, certainly. Um, and we can we can think back to maybe what those times were like. But today's modern time under King Charles III, uh, Richie Sunak, um, and then you've got, uh, the, you've got President Biden. So those are the current state of affairs. And it's always been a cultural exchange uh, with other countries too, on the same kind of level, but particularly with England and particularly with their music uh, musical um, eras um, 
they were interchangeable. We were sort of interchangeable. Um, American bands in the early 60s uh, and mid-60s, uh, post-Beatles or right during, uh, wanted, American bands wanted to sound like a British band. That was the thing you needed to do. So it was now uh, Mo-style haircuts, right? Um, and everybody has a, had that mop top, and uh, everybody became sort of a Fab Five, whatever your band was consisted of. Uh, we were all to varying commercial professional success, right? Um, we had more successful Beatle, uh, Beatle um, sort of uh, homaging um, uh, 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 contemporary bands of the Beatles that imitated the Beatles' style, really, almost verbatim, unabashedly, some of them. Uh, it was apparent, it was always, always apparent, but you listen for the validity of it, and it always was usually a good hit song, whether it was a one-hit uh, wonder uh, or, or a, great, a great already established singer. So you had the British influence coming from, you know, far and, uh, far and wide. And we had Eric Clapton would be a great example of a Brit. Um, you know, Ginger Baker, what he contributed. Um, the list goes on to our, to that whole lineage. Um, and our whole, uh, all our learning, our whole, our, our learning, but whole exploration and discovery, really discovery. We, we, I like new. I like new. Um, I liked it back then. I like it now. I like new. I like a new album that comes out. I like that crisp opening of the album experience. I like playing the record. I like uh, to see the needle go across the vinyl. Um, I long to kind of want to get back to having a setup to be able to do that. Um, it is a doable thing. Um, I would need to cross a couple of hurdles, and one would be to get a turntable. I've looked before. I've vacillated on, on top sellers, classic turntables. My attitude was if I found, uh, if I found a classic uh, Girard uh, turntable, let's say, um, or if I found a, a Technics, that was sort of like a uh, ubiquitous thing. You would have uh, 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 a piece of equipment, audio equipment that you would have had in your early '80s collection, for example, or you know. And then you kept it for like 20 years, you know. Uh, and now you have a Bose system, which you like, but some elements of it is not the same. And um, I myself have older vintage 70s componentry. Um, it works with the rock era kind of classic music I play um, that I like to usually play. And then I, um, I put that on and I carefully, I'm careful with it, my interface. Um, it might need cleaning. The volume might be a little staticky, but it gets it right tuned. It's actually pretty good. My display is like orange, red. I like that color. It's a slate kind of black, dark gray at least, um, uh, slate uh, 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 
tuner, not tuner, it is a, it is a receiver. Um, it's the amplifier and the tuner built in. And you don't have to sacrifice, really, essentially, you don't usually have to sacrifice. There's not going to be a big fall off uh, if you get a separate tuner and amplifier, let's say. Although I do like that setup, but I don't have that set up right now. Um, it's one piece of equipment. It's a uh, rather handsome and understated way looking, and um, it is uh, under, it's uh, nestled on the top shelf inside my um, entertainment table with the TVs on. Underneath that is, is a sort of vintage 80s, uh, maybe early 90s CD player, and I kept that. Um, uh, and I like my speakers are vintage 70s, and uh, pretty much all of them. And I like the setup I have. I have a tower configuration uh, made up of uh, uh, four twin speakers, two on each side, left and right channel. I like two-channel stereo. It's just simple. I can understand it. I like it. I like other sound uh, environments uh, that, you know, are selectable. I like the technology, but I like the old dials, and I like the old knobs, and I like to turn to put the volume on. I like to turn a dial to do that. I like the power of it, the clean power. I like to play my music relatively with some relatively loud presence. Um, but not really too loud. Uh, um, I did stand by the speakers at loud rock concerts, and I definitely did do that. And um, I, um, I like to sit back now and listen in my living room when I occasionally do take out, the, play the stereo. So right now it's um, it is uh, late morning, ten twenty-two, uh, and it's quiet. It's quiet here. Um, it's a very nice um, sunlight coming in early morning. Well, mid-morning, late morning sunlight coming in uh, in late November, and it's a sort of a uh, cloudy skies, but with with blue with some blue in there. Um, so a fair day, a fair day. Um, and we're chilling, we're lamping, we're all lamping in here. And um, I wanted to just, I went on a little bit about um, our thing with Britain. Yeah, our, our whole groovy thing going on uh, with Britain. Uh, certainly, in our in our growing up, uh, uh, so we had all that kind of influence, um, uh, and it came in. In radio was big, radio was really big. Actually, radio was huge. Radio was huge. Um, uh, yeah, um, I could easily say that radio was just at its peak. Um, it had. The most advertising outside of television, certainly. <clears throat> Newspapers were powerful, big back then. 
Um, uh, I can remember newspapers with just page after page of full full page ads in uh, glorious black and white. And, you know, from department stores and commerce and everything in between. Uh, you know, it was maybe a, it, maybe it was a, 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 a soap ad uh, that took up an entire, you know, maybe it was a Dove soap ad, right? A testimonial ad, you know, and then you turn the page and it was your sales at your, your nearby uh, produce market. And then, you know, your butcher shop was on the opposite page with his offerings. And you knew the butcher, right? Um, uh, before the onset of our technology that we, as we know it. Um, so we got out on our cars and we ventured more. Um, it was activity, it was commerce. Um, it really seemed to like fall into a proper way about it. Uh, it seemed to be the right way of going about the day. And we all seemed to accept it. We all uh, sort of bought, bought into the whole idea of that free enterprise spirit. And we had that free enterprise spirit, I would imagine... Um, although I wasn't born then, but I would imagine post-war. I would imagine post-war, soon after. You know, um, cars were starting to get made again. Uh, the ammunition factories and the airplane factories of the, of the big car makers were now being uh, put to back to their original uh, purpose, which was to build cars uh, for a huge burgeoning uh, burgeoning um, uh, consumer culture uh, you know and GM had not yet probably invented that obsolete obsolete um, obsolete um, uh, before it's time kind of uh, ethos I'm sure it didn't when it was building cars in the 30s and 40s but by the 50s uh, cookie-cutter mentality, certainly. Um, uh, there was, I'm sure, workers were well-paid. They always had, auto workers always growing up when I was a kid were one of the highest-paid uh, workers, certainly, on the scene, uh, was your United Auto Worker. Reunions were strong back then. And so I'm talking like 70s and 80s, late 70s, you know. Um, they kind of reached a whole peak of um, very kind of um, democratic, uh, where I think people were re just making more money. Uh, the, the 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 dollar was still pretty pretty strong from that 1967 benchmark. Um, it, it, it the the seventy six dollar, I think was was starting to kind of there was obviously inflation. Um, and but there was also uh, some good regulation going on up until 72, 73. But then the EPA kind of kicked in from the early days of six, late 60s, early 70. Um, and, you know, Earth Day was established. And that was 1970, April. 
and it's still celebrated every year since then. And we still, we look at the environment, um, we look at it in a, we examine what we're experiencing. Um, you know, things haven't really shown itself yet, except through some other extreme cases. Um, many people have experienced extreme cases which have heightened extreme cases of weather. Um, extreme, uh, uh, extreme ocean uh, activity. Uh, you know, um, atmospheric aspects. Um, global warming um, uh, sort of manifestations showing themselves um, sort of early on in the game actually um, but the EPA uh, saved our lives uh, up until today this day and into the future because it was one of those steadfast federal uh, established organizations that meant business um, and it really came to being under uh, an unlikely person, uh, uh, President Nixon. Uh, so he does get credit uh, for establishing the EPA, um, and maybe justly so. But the EPA already enacted, uh, it soon was very successful in... Um, eradicating real harms to us. Um, lead poisoning was still an ongoing issue in lead paint, for instance, and it still is today in some of our poorer communities. Um, but uh, certainly with um, proper uh, necessities of life, uh, proper drinking water, um, which we all take for granted, um, you know, we pour it through our Brita filters to make our coffee every morning. It hydrates us during the day. Um, and then we taper off at night because we don't want to, maybe, maybe we're a little older and we don't want to, um, we don't want to have to do another couple extra trips to the bathroom if we can help it. Uh, and, you know, uh, but it's all, it's all related with, um, It's, it's kind of interesting how, um, like, you see clues of it in every waking day. Um, you try to be positive, right, um, with your outlooks, uh, with your outlook. Um, there's an outlook and there are outlooks, maybe. Um, maybe you branch off from that. Maybe there are tributaries, too. Um, maybe you have a goal. Um, uh, maybe you've actually written down some goals. Um, I've never really actively done that, I don't think. But I would suppose it would be a good exercise, actually, when I think about it now. Uh, and the holidays is like the perfect time to kind of like formulate that list, if there is one list. Um... If you can juggle all that in your mind, if there's that much going on, hopefully you have a kind of a, a simple kind of, um, I don't know, like a nice um, snow-driven scene of serenity uh, this winter. Um, we hope that you are having warm and comfortable winter.
Um, we hope that um, you have a relaxing winter. You hope it's <clears throat> a relatively stress-free winter, which is so hard for some of us. Um, why is it the holidays that we amplify that we amplify these stressful feelings that we have. Um, and some of us actually can really suspend and dispel those, um, those sort of like little things that are going on that we kind of like get clogged up and bogged down with in, in really an OCD, uh, in an OCD manner, certainly. And I've experienced that, of course. I have. Um, and, uh, I suffered with the, the draw checking thing I, it, uh, I was explaining to my sister-in-law the other day, Janet, it bogs you down, you know, looking back on it. Um, and I have like several years, you know, <clears throat> a couple of decades of that kind of experience. Um, <clears throat> and I look back with it as an experience, uh, good and bad. Good and bad. So uh, it's it's each day waking up, uh, kind of in a try to in a fresh way, um, where everybody is getting good sleep out there, right? Um, because sleep is really actually a critical um, uh, whole thing that that keeps it all together. Really, when you think about it, if you give it some thought. Um, your experiences with sleep um, is it interrupted? Do you have to get up a lot? Um, can you sleep kind of mostly the night through? Um, can you get up um, and then have a cigarette and go back to sleep? Maybe you can, maybe you can't. Um, do you like to get up in the middle of the night? If you do, hey, that's cool. But remember, you're taking away. Um, what works with what, how it works with me basically is when I get up the first time I use the bathroom and that's probably at around 11, 11 o'clock, let's say at night. And then I get up maybe again, but not a lot. Um, a lot of the times I've noticed I can sleep through, but I do get up, um, and I have been kind of getting up maybe a little recently, uh, at around two. Uh, I know because my clock chimes at those hours. So 11 and 2 and then 2 until, you know, 6.30 in the morning. Um, I like 6.30 as a good wake-up time. Um, I like it when it's still a little dark out uh, this time of year. Um, and I like, um, I like that early, you know, that late November light that you get at, let's say, 6 in the morning. You know, I don't even mind getting up at six. Um, the f cats get fed. The coffee is made. Um, and uh, it's it's the start of another day. And it's kind of a cool time. I, it gives me a time to kind of like uh, not take the phone out yet and not start not interfacing with the phone quite yet. Um, it's still on the charger. Um, and then take a few sips of coffee, right? Kick back. Um, that's what I do. That's what I do. Close my eyes sometimes just to kind of like, you know, kind of like not zone out, but go with the whole kind of like 
um, present vibe, if you can, if you can kind of capture it, right? I think we all make valiant attempts to really kind of capture. It's hard, actually, to live in the present, right? Think about it. Um, I think for a lot of us, we do obviously live in the present. Life goes on. Everybody's just doing their own thing. It's all cool. Um, and, uh, you know, um, people are interesting. Uh, and they, we go about our lives, all of us, um, in a sort of, um, uh, it's, a, it's a sort of a continuum of um, if we're feeling good that day, we're, we've got a really good attitude and it's, it's really all good. It translates to goodness and um, kindness, right? Um, and, you know, charity, really, actually real charity, um, non-monetarily, uh, uh, just an all-around cool, good, groovy vibe going on out there, let's say, for the most part. And then the holidays come, and it's a little more frantic, right? Um, but my experience has always been people are very, very nice. Um, uh, I had a good Christmas shopping experience uh, last time I went, um, and then I, I had a, an efficient way of buying gifts, which I kind of might not do this year, um, just to switch things up. Uh, I always do want to give a more thought. Um, my problem is I wait until the 11th hour where the selection is not not as nearly as good. So I do kind of wait late to do my Christmas shopping. And, um, and then, but this year, I'll either have a game plan going in. Um, I may have a few gifts in mind, but for the most part, I'm going to go in and it's going to just be all looking in the aisles and seeing what kind of like I want to get, but putting thought into it. Um, and then um, really making like a half a morning of it or half a day of it. Um, and the lines move fast in these stores. Um, no problems there, typically. Uh, they know how to deal with the Christmas rush. Uh, and I would like to shop in the second week of December, let's say. I think that seems like a good time to do some Christmas shopping where the stores still have a good selection, right? Um, and do I want to go to just one store? Uh, maybe I will. I don't know. I'm going to see. Uh, I want to get a tree, a small tree, a tabletop tree. Um, I want to get a real tree, of course. Um, and I want to do that in the next couple of weeks. Um, we're already in the first couple of weeks of December. Uh, we're in the last week of, of September, of, uh, I'm sorry, November. And, uh, and we've got that light, you know, we got that light and it's really like, like I'm anticipating right now, really, um, to, um, I had to reposition the mic there. Uh, let me just take a swig of this coffee. Mm. Uh, it's a new low-acid coffee I'm trying out. Um, it's called... Um, uh, what is it called? It begins with a P. Uh, anyway, it's good. I like it. 
uh, red and white bag, um, affordably priced, in probably in your supermarket. I know it's in my market basket. Um, I like to compare coffees. I like to try different coffees out. Um, I was with my sister-in-law the other day when we both bought this bag because we our other normal red brick common grounds coffee, um, which is a great coffee for the price. I can't. It's really good. Um, and uh, they were out of stock, but we tried this. I like it. I like it. I'm going to take another sip. I like to sip coffee, you know? I really I really milk the coffee uh, inter- interchange because, uh, or the drinking of it. Because I like to make my, um, I got a good Yeti mug, a Paul Massey one. Um, and I got the, it's black and I like it. It's trusty and it keeps the coffee hot for quite a long time. Um, you know, after the cat food goes in, the coffee is made. So that gives you an idea where my priorities are in the morning. Uh, I then settle in for quiet, a little quiet time. And then hopefully it's, it's sort of dark, but it's getting light, you know, uh, the promise of a new day sort of thing. Um, I like um, the light coming in the house. This light, uh, I got a southern um, southern exposure here, so I'm exposed. I got nice light coming in for most of the day, even this time of year. I like um, the fact that it's just the cats can lie down on the floor in these bands of sun and sort of like just just um sort of like totally be so you know in the moment that the sun and then being in the moment um you know as you think back in your life and how and everything were you in the moment you know because it it is a hard thing but it really is something that's kind of easy to understand um if you could plug into one kind of key um there's many of uh, of you having that kind of it's uh, it's it's got all the good things about it attached to it. Um, uh, I think um, you know s- simplistic attitude, but not you know I got you know your your aesthetic. Um, <clears throat> you you like to uh, you do like to harken back. You do like. Uh, you do like artwork on your wall. Um, you you do like uh, photos on your table, um, on your corner corner uh, living room table. Um, you like little, you know, you like like nice little pieces of vase and artwork and pottery here and there, and then you like um, you know you like a couple of mirrors, right? And then, so you've now got your walls are covered. Um, should you put art on that part of the wall? Um, should you um, should you move this picture to the kitchen and move the one that's in the kitchen um, over at this end of the room here, in the living room? Right? Uh, do you do you do you uh, take a, uh, a picture out of mothballs that you forgot about that you discover? Wow, that's fresh. And then, um, you know, maybe you you go by it a couple times. You mull about 
putting, repurposing its place, and you find a good spot on the wall. Maybe you have to take out two pictures to get it, right? Um, and maybe you've got a judicial, because now you've got to figure out where those two pictures go. Um, and they're usually 8 by 10 kind of smaller pictures, right? So now you've found a good place because they're relatively small artworks and they can go, and you've found really good, fast solution. Um, you like a really fast solution. You like efficiency. Um, you got to pull the dining room chair out into the living room because you got to get up to, um, you've got to get up to the molding. Um, you've got to, uh, you've got to get higher, uh, in a higher position to, uh, hammer a screw into the wall and then you screw it in further and then now you can hang your picture. And then, so you sit back and you enjoy how you did everything. And you learn that as you get older, you kind of like appreciate these kind of things. It seem like, wow, incidental, but they're really not. I think your environment goes in and out with how your psyche is. You know, your psyche is your environment. So I'm an orderly kind of guy by nature, but I don't use the right kind of ways to get about there. I'm a procrastinator. Um, I've got undone parts of the house, certainly, unresolved aspects of the house. I've got a little progress upstairs with the attic space up there, which is now basically, you know, not much space up there except Kane going up there in the summer. Um, he likes it up there. Uh, he likes the quiet up there. And, you know, and so I've got you know, a cat that stays on the main floor, Lulu, and Kane, uh, he goes upstairs during the summer for what seems up to like three or four hours up there just sleeping. Um, and he's up there and he likes it there. And uh, it's, it's, got, it's got no real room to put any even small frame anywhere. Um, I... I've maxed out my wall space, certainly. Uh, today I cleaned uh, my uh, great-aunt's painting, my Aunt Irene, um, a wonderful person growing up, my great-aunt Irene Fazette. Uh, she was a gamache, um, marrying a Fazette, and wonderful. And she did paintings for... Um, her, her, um, her cousins, uh, her, her, uh, her brothers and sisters, uh, and her nieces and nephews, and my mom and dad, niece, my mom, niece, my dad, niece, um, and my mom, niece of uh, my of Aunt Irene and uh, Fizette, and she painted uh, lovely. Uh, this one we had my mom got. And when my parents got married in 1955, uh, a nice, large painting uh, suitable for over the couch. And this one is over my couch. And it's a winter scene. And I cleaned it today with Dove, uh, I'm sorry, with Dawn detergent. And I um, actually should have gone over it with the sponge one more time. I didn't want to leave any soap residue, but I think it's okay. Um, it might be incrementally brighter. There was some dirt transfer, um, years of dirt, but not surprisingly a lot. 
um, relatively paint, the painting came through in the 60 years plus, um, almost 70 years of existence. It's, uh, it still looks probably as new as it was painted. Um, it has an antique quality to it. It's a pleasant river, uh, intimate river cabin moonlit scene uh, with snow. So it's a winter wonderland scene, a Christmas card scene. Uh, and it was very nice gift that my Aunt Tyreen gave my parents. Uh, and I think all the aunts and uncles got a gift when they got married for my Aunt Tyreen similar to this. Um, I know my Aunt Claire got one that looked, uh, had more reds in it, um, I believe. Another very nice scene. Not sure if it was a winter scene. I think it might have been. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, still a very nice painting. But my parents got the one that has a greenish, um, a greenish hue to it. Very antique and very well executed by my Aunt Tyreen. And I, we all have an Aunt Tyreen. We all have an Aunt Tyreen who is awesome. And, you know, our experiences of kids are awesome. I always think of the, these little isolated happenings and stories that were kind of like, you know, little things that happen that you look back and were quite charming. Um, and, you know, you think of these things, wow, where did this come from? But, you know, they were part of your experience and just as valid. And one of those that hits me now really um, as is um, we had a great babysitter, Jack, Jack, Jacqueline, Jackie Letourneau. She was a high school, um, st I believe, very smart. She brought her studies and her books to, uh, with her when she babysat. Um, she was your teenage babysitter, and we were lucky to have her, really. She was really great, and she was very caring, and we really liked Janine a lot, all of us. Um, and we had a few good babysitters, but, uh, but Jackie, um, Jackie, uh, I said Janine, Janine was a later one, but Jackie uh, Letourneau, certainly. And we, uh, she got a t convertible. Uh, it was a new car, uh, and she came in with it, and it was a great convertible, and we all went for a ride on a nice sunny day. Um, might have been a Sunday, I think. Uh, could have been a Saturday, yep. And uh, yeah, she pulled in the driveway with it, and we all jumped in, we pulled out, and we had a great old ride. Uh, without seat belts, I remember standing up in it, uh, in this convertible going down. I wanted the wind. I wanted the whole thing, you know. Um, we were probably all standing up in it. You know, you wouldn't have that today. Certainly not. Um, that would definitely stand out today. Um, yeah. And just not safe thing to do. But it was safe back then and relatively uneventful. You know, maybe dad had to put the brakes on and then you learn to, you know, brace yourself um, in the back seat, for instance. You know, maybe you're jumping in back there. Um, we used to rock on the back seats to music and my father would tell us to stop uh, doing that because it was shaking the car, you know, back and forth, which we couldn't understand. Uh, such a big car and we're just little kids. But yeah, I guess we really rocked hard, you know. we were. We were rocking 
we were rocking on couch. Uh, we have stories about it, memories about it. Uh, rocking on the couch, uh, kids, um, growing up. And we were standing up in, in the convertible. I think we went to Capron Park in Attleboro over here. Yeah, and I think uh, we had a great time, and then we were back home. And it was probably half a day, half an afternoon. Uh, we were back before nighttime, certainly, and it was a white car, and I don't forget what color the seats were. I think maybe blue, let's say, light blue. Um, a beautiful car, and she was awesome. Yeah, Jackie Letourneau and Janine Allard who was fun, too. She was maybe even a little more funner than Jackie. Jackie had a sort of a serious thing. Um, Jackie had the perfect tem temperament for the babysitter. Uh, Janine was a little more easygoing, and we, re we sort of took advantage of that. You know, I mean, we're just kids, right? Um, I know there's examples of where we just took advantage of, of Janine's kind-hearted good nature. You know, she was just one of those kind-hearted kind of persons, and... And we realized it at the time, and we didn't we didn't abuse it in any way, but we did take advantage of her good nature. You know, you do that, right? You feel comfortable. We felt comfortable with Janine, certainly. Uh, she may have been our favorite babysitter, but Jackie Letourneau, certainly, uh, with her books um, and her. Yeah, what she brought to the table. Um, these are these were young kids that you could trust uh, with a brood, you know, that such as we were growing up, and uh, we were really lucky. And you know, you moved and you took the babysitter with you when you moved to another part of the city or town uh, across the way, and you moved back then. Let's say. And then, so she came, um, uh, Janine Allard came over to the new house and babysat from there, right? She just relocated her operation. And we, it was all really fun and kind of groovy scene. I must say. I like baking. Um, I like the idea of baking. I'm not a baker per se. My sister and sister-in-law are, uh, sister-in-laws are, actually. Um, and, yeah, we're like, you know, um, it's really kind of interesting uh, because we grew up with pastry. Um, we had the coffee made. My dad got up early on Sunday morning uh, for work, and he made a nice pot of coffee full 12 cup maximum on that one with, you know, with the coffee of the day, uh, be it Maxwell House, Folgers, or Brim, a popular brand back then. And uh, he would make the pot of coffee usually very well made, delicious. Um, we were an early drip, coffee drip makers were making it really big on the scenes then. And we were, we uh, were, Definitely one of the earlier adopters, and the coffee maker. You know your ubiquitous countertop coffee maker in your kitchen, tucked underneath your cupboard. You know in the shadow of your cupboard, taken out prominently 
when making your coffee at 5.30 in the morning or 10.30 in the morning or 1 o'clock in the afternoon, depending on your time. Coffee uh, unites, coffee joins people. Coffee is by far the most important beverage ever invented um, with a little help from Mother Nature, of course, um, prodding it along. Uh, the great Arab Arabica and Robusto coffee bean, you know, uh, processed just right. You know, maybe you get it ground at your local purveyor of, of uh, fine coffees, you know, from around the world. Uh, today, of course, and for a long time, these coffees were made uh, right to water, and, you know, while you waited, and, you know, maybe you waited a while for that Moroccan uh, treat that you were expecting. And if you're like me, I like it unadulterated, except I do like some dairy in there, particularly half and half. Whole milk kind of doesn't cut it for me. Half and half is good. Um, so whatever floats your boat in the coffee prep aisle as you depart your neighborhood Starbucks, for instance, which makes a pretty decent cup of coffee. Uh, their, their products are actually pretty good. Um, there's a Morning Joe in particular I, that we like um, around these parts. Um, but yeah, Starbucks, even, you know, even your local Dunkin' Donuts, um, certainly. Uh, even your local Dunkin' Donuts. Um, so we have these purveyors of the coffee bean. So maybe you're walking back home with your bag of, uh, of coffee beans from the coffee exchange. You know, you live right off Wickenden Street. You know, you live on Brook Street and you walked about the eighth of a mile uh, to, uh, to uh, Wickenden Street and there was coffee exchange. Trustworthy, open early, closed sort of late. Uh, optimum coffee time is always a time to stop at uh, coffee exchange. I recommend it for the busyness of the atmosphere. Uh, the sometimes encountering a little bit of the snobbery that goes on to be, you know, to be understood to a certain extent uh, on, a, on a college uh, sit in a college uh, campus city um, and so you've got a numerous you've got a number of important universities that have presence maybe in your city and you go and you enjoy the park like with your cup of coffee of course uh, maybe you made it at home um, and you're enjoying it and it's nice and hot and you're appreciative of how crisp the fall morning is. And, you know, maybe you're thinking about early Christmas gifts. Um, maybe it's not even on your radar yet. Maybe you're one of those shoppers that just gets it all together in the last couple of weeks leading up to Christmas, you know. Um, you know, you, you know what kind of wrapping paper you want. You know what theme you want to go with this year, maybe. as a unifying theme. Always a cool thing. Um, so, uh, the whole, uh, the whole overall theme of Christmas, maybe it's a cold, wintry landscape, lone, you know, lonesomeness and loneliness, maybe, and longings, certainly longings. Uh, maybe there's a fireplace in there to warm it up.
you know. I always liked the like the the movies that had like campsite scenes in them, whether they were on the beach with like a clam bake in particular, like Jaws, for instance. Uh, it had a great campfire scene, the opening scene of the movie, of course, um, and the gory non-details that were shown back in mid-70s theater, uh, theatrical uh, releases, features, feature films. Um, and this was Jaws and the opening scene. You know, it's that glow of the campfire on on a person, the, the glow of the skin, that reddish color. I love to capture that, any opportunity I get. Um, and I've had opportunities, and I've capitalized on those opportunities, um, just from a photographic standpoint. But they're, they're all memorable scenes that sort of carved a real, actual carving, almost physicality to uh, our memories that we have. You know, maybe it is that vacation that I experienced last summer, last fall, early fall, I should say, um, up in the mountains of New Hampshire. And then maybe it's, um, maybe you spent time just hanging around your home, getting things done around the house, you know. Um, you know, fall cleanup. Uh, a ritual that, you know, is totally, uh, totally works with the whole... Uh, hard-working American, you know, pioneer spirit ethos, you know, that we have clean-up days, you know. We take out the, the broom and we sweep out the kitchen. And, you know, it's a linoleum floor that's maybe a little careworn, you know. Uh, it's got a history to it. And maybe your budget's tight, you know. Kitchen table scene. Um, always poignant in a movie, a typical movie. I always like plays that revolve around the kitchen table. Kitchen table dramas. Um, in all shapes and various sizes, in a wonderful uh, uh, cornucopia, uh, a wonderful, um, uh, when you get animals, menagerie, a menagerie, menagerie of, uh, of, of that whole thing. And, and it's all like, it's cinematic, but it's also stage-o-matic. I mean, it is like pure gold uh, if your dialogue takes place at a ki kitchen table. Uh, kitchen table dramas are really like they're the bread and butter of, of our existence because it's reality. And you can think of so many realistic plays out there, neo-realistic, uh, realistic um, atmospheric, certainly, but also very um, abstract, some of them. Um, abstract that adds an intellectual awareness and sort of a, um, a gestalt aspect to it. Um, powerful scenes at the kitchen table. Uh, the kitchen table drama fits into a, an opening scene of a play or a closing scene of a movie or play. And the actors are all typically wonderful. And there's, there's tensions. There's family dynamics and dysfunction. Uh, there's a, maybe there's a dystopian overtones. Maybe there is some politics involved. Maybe they don't get along. Maybe they're just quiet. 
Maybe it's an older father with a younger daughter and son-in-law living with the father in the father's homestead and heirloom home. And he is in, he's in the other room on the recliner. And it's very, uh, it's very uh, uh, typical of the extended families that we had um, into the, uh, the advent of suburbia, uh, the advent of the established um, older person's home. They were becoming more, uh, they were becoming more available and they were more uh, accommodating. Um, there were activities, you know, it was all a fresh look attitude. Uh, they were open with the best of intentions, um, and most of them stayed in business and maybe still are in business today. Uh, some of these places have sort of a pretty good, long, steady history of good care, for example. Uh, incidences, of course, any large institutions, and we have a number of large rest home um, companies out there. And for the most part, not a big deal with the state regulators. They, I think our state homes, luckily, we are pretty lucky in Rhode Island um, that we have the quality of care, first of all, uh, that we have on the front lines and up to therapeutic aspects of it. You know, um, the physical therapy that might be involved, which sometimes can be more harrowing than the injury itself. Uh, these injuries stay with the person's psyche and, um, and, and they, they sort of live, think, and relive their injuries. Uh, we think of the veteran that recalls his, uh, his wartime, uh, wartime injuries on the front, on, you, know, you know, a mile uh, from the actual real front but close enough to get the, some collateral effect going on. And um, so to be a soldier then, uh, yeah, it would be, a, it would be, it, it would be a, an adventure to say the least. But I often put myself in that position. It's kind of, you can almost picture yourself in that situation. You ask, you always ask the age old question, um, and it's, it's, it's basically that, you know, am I going to be up to snuff? Am I going to be an asset or liability? Am I going to be a chicken shit livered coward? Or am I going to be uh, sort of a, um, an outgoing leadership type, um, getting something done in a field, of, in, a, in, a, in artillery fire, in a field, house-to-house uh, -house combat, you know, which was a lot of the case in World War II after D-Day. Um, we had a lot of knockings on doors in the French countryside back then. Uh, armies would take over the house, typically, if it was a manor, if it was a large home, uh, convert uh, what was once a, a dining room into uh, the main office uh, for where the leadership uh, gave out its, it dispatched its orders and looked at the big map and made progress. And it was usually generals that took over. I can imagine World War II, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of these, um, a lot of these uh, um, generals, um, they were, had egos that were like monumental, um, monumental scale egos. Um, you know, we can think of so many egotistical, um, uh, egotistical uh, 
generals, certainly. And so the general was always like, he could relax now unless he was striving for a five-star. Uh, maybe he's a three-star and he's happy with it. That's a good general to me, a three-star general who's happy in his position, uh, has a positive attitude. He has had all his career. He's a, he's a sort of, he's a really good example of a good, uh, steady kind of person um, to have in your, in your army, in your platoon, in your group. Uh, someone that you can totally trust. Uh, someone that you can totally surrender any authority to. Uh, someone who you will gladly uh, heart listen to and uh, carry through. Uh, uh, orders, formal or informal, or otherwise. Someone that you might could sit down with a beer with, maybe, but you're not going to go there out of respect for his position. Someone who's earned that reputation through a pretty long, let's say, 15, 20-year career of, of pretty gung-ho, yet kept in perspective. Um, I respect the general who has respect for authority, of course, Um, he wouldn't be in that position unless he had that ultimate respect for authority, um, but not not super over the top gung ho, uh, but regular army. I, I like regular army, but I like a regular army that has some flexibility and maybe a little bit of sense of humor. Um, and those experiences went on. I'm sure um, I wasn't there at the time. Um, and I uh, was in my early teens and late teens when World War, when um, the Vietnam War was winding down. So, you know, by let's say 75, 76, 77, um, we had it quieting down, you know, right around our bi the bicentennial, um, it, right around 1976, I think we had sort of a Yeah, it was probably a good period, although inflation. Um, and I do gravitate to that um, that year on a lot of aspects. Um, I uh, I like the music of that period. Um, uh, it's sort of my go-to period of music, certainly. Um, when I put a first song on, let's say if I want to listen to music on an afternoon... I put the first song on, it's going to mostly be from 1970, definitely. I can easily say that, and I, and I won't really divert from that. Um, and I can, I like other periods of music, of course, uh, but the 70s really resonate with me. All the inventions and the, the great innovations, graphically, recording-wise, audio-wise, of the rock bands the rock bands of the era, uh, of that decade, you know. Um, it was really a great decade, the 70s, and I was glad to be part of it, and I was involved in it. I was a 17-year-old uh, in 1977, um, and I had long hair, uh, rather unmanageable hair, tangled hair, uh, bad hair day hair, Uh, with very few good hair days, uh, actually memorable, where my, my hair was actually working with me. 
You know, I liked it when it had a luster and a shine, you know, and it was, you know, it wasn't tangled and it was, it was good. I had, I went through kind of a little period like that. I know it's funny to say, but you know, you like your good hair. Men are the same way. Men really take care of their hair. Well, look, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, men and women hair care products. Um, but the 60s and 70s, definitely the 60s, uh, I'm enamored with mostly the television presentations of network television in particular in the 60s. And then, um, which spilled over into the 70s. And then connecting right from that, the great rock band era of invention and um, real good, uh, real well-engineered songs, uh, some of them long, some of them short, free form of rock. Rock worked with all these different formats, you know, fusion. Um, we had fusion, thankfully, came as a byproduct out of that. We had rockabilly, which is really, if you think about it, it's really influences huge. You know, Roy Orbison aside, I mean, he, he put it on the map in a real, real sense and really good way, certainly. Great songwriter and great, great singer, really. And that high alto voice that he achieved at falsetto for the most part. Um, but real true rockability, well-written, crafted songs. Um, poetic, touching, there's ballads, there's fast songs. Um, he could do a rock thing, but he could do certainly a very kind of, um, uh, I would call it sort of a mellow uh, interlude, uh, would be a typical Roy Orbison sort of ballad song. Um, uh, any length, pick a length, seven minutes, not that long, five minutes, let's say. A five-minute song in 1975 was becoming a norm in album-oriented rock. rock. Um, the studios promoted their albums to radio stations, private and college and public radio stations alike became, uh, became um, airing uh, places that aired these albums from our favorite rock bands. Um, and then so we, we nourished our needs and desires musically with FM radio. Uh, the sound bit was better. We noticed that it wasn't hissing in the background. It was quiet, you know. Uh, FM was different. It was a real different sonic experience switchover. And you would say that that would be like a footnote, if that. Um, you know, something that you would just totally overlook. But if you really pay attention um, to what you're listening to, going from AM radio and then later AM radio really being quality um, compromised, certainly with the trans advent of the transistor, where transmission was really more important than final fidelity, let's say. Um, and we were craving better sound. You know, we had the little earplug. It was a mono, one little white earplug, you know. I had them as a kid, you know, quiet when you wanted, you were in bed, let's say, and you didn't want to disturb anybody. You put your little earplug in. It was one ear. Um, and you, your whole world came in with that one little earplug uh, through your ear canal into your brain. And whether you were trying to fall asleep to it, to AM radio songs, and we all knew that lineup back there. Um, you know, it was really in the 70s, it would have been, 
a snapshot, let's say, would have been um, Neil Sedaka. Um, I hear laughter in the wind, right? That song, um, uh, walking hand in hand with the one I love. Uh, laughter in the rain. So that's Neil. And then you had Neil Diamond. You know, you had um, you had all the great kind of like uh, uh, balladeers, balladeers back in the day. Um, you had vestiges. You had some kind of crossover going on already back then because rock afforded itself to it. The rockability we talked about, but also uh, certainly the country western was a big influence. The British sound that we talked about before, um, the Beatles invasion, the British invasion, um, first, first wave. Uh, we're experiencing subsequent waves since then. Um, but that was the great big wave uh, with the, uh, the Beatles riding that high wave uh, for a relatively long extended career until they broke up in 1971 officially. Uh, devastating news for everybody. Uh, the nuns in school uh, really kind of liked the Beatles. Um, we had a nun that would put on, uh, I know she put it on a few times, let it be. Uh, Mother Mary comes to me. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Uh, I was in grade school, and I was in probably sixth grade when that came out. Um, seventh grade, eighth grade, actually. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's interesting to compare how that rock era, let's say we're talking about, of the 70s album-oriented concept album rock, uh, which now brought in so many more different aspects of the entertainment that is the long playing record. Uh, the 12 by 12 inch format lended itself perfectly to cover art um, on a really good scale. The back was ample room for liner notes or more continuation of artwork. Um, and, and then you opened it up and maybe it was the band members all going across um, and then and then lyrics inside too, right? Uh, lyrics were important in 70s music. Um, Simon and Garfunkel really kind of like really emphasized the lyric uh, in, of course, tuneful, total ways. Uh, many successful songs by Simon and Garfunkel. Um, and maybe you haven't even discovered some of them. Uh, some of them might be new to you. Um, so we all have our personal experience with music. Because music is personal. Um, it's certainly not impersonal. Um, we all sort of place ourselves in, in that world. We sort of suspend ourselves, ideally. We can get into that state of mind where we can really get just go with the music. Don't overthink it. Uh, maybe don't try to think about other things, even if they might be pleasant, but maybe that's good. Maybe that's where your groove is. Um, and then you're maybe looking out at the blue sky while you listen to Kodachrome by Paul Simon, let's say. Uh, and it's really optimistic. And it's going to be all right. The world's fine. Uh, it's, we, can, we can think about nostalgia um, AKA the, the Kodachrome, 
um, and we can think about um, we can think about summer. We can think about everything that that, that might invoke uh, through the lyric, uh, through the spirit of the song, certainly uh, through the entire presentation. Um, and then maybe it's performed live and it's successful, or maybe it's not successful. Maybe it's really meant to be a studio song. Uh, Kodachrome to me is a in the cement meant to be studio song. Um, it's a very tightly composed, well-produced song. Um, totally enjoyably listenable to. Um, and still has revel relevance today because we can always translate everything, right? We can always flop something over and put it on an overlay of our present kind of like experience, you know? What is our... What is our, our Zeitgeist? Uh, what, is our, what are our hopes? What is our outlook? Um, what, is, what is positive thought? What is negative thought? If we know it more about the difference between the two, are we better off, better people because of it? Uh, don't we want to improve as people? Uh, don't we want to, um, don't we want to go and make the right choices. Don't we all set out to sort of make the right choices? Um, and don't we all have the interest of other people at heart? Don't we always factor in people that we love and care about? Our friends, don't we, don't we always kind of like, we consider our friends. Um, we uh, participate maybe, and maybe not enough as a family. Um, small or large. Maybe you're one of those big families that gets together on a regular occasion, you know? Maybe it's that patriarchal family that's very, got strong, real roots and, and is still vibrant. And, you know, maybe it's, it's it, the meeting place is at, at great-grandpa's house now, because there's three, there's four generations on, fourth generations on its way. And maybe there's, you know, maybe there's Maybe there's 18 to 20 of you, certainly, as part of the group, from all the slices of ages, you know, with, with the father and the mother of the family, and then the grandparents, and then the great-grandparents. And maybe they're still both alive at 97 each, you know? Um, maybe she's still doing little painting. She's doing some activity to keep her busy, right? Uh, we all like to keep busy. Maybe um, he's decorating the tree this year because he's got the energy for it. He feels better. His doctor put him on some better heart medication, and it's really agreeing with him, and he doesn't want to rock the boat, and I'm exactly the same way. If a medication's working, I think you stay with it. Uh, a lot of people want to just switch things up for the sake of it. I'm not one of those switch things up for the sake of it kind of guys. Um... I want to like try to be efficient, but I know I make little mistakes along the way. They don't really get to me. They don't really get get into my purview, so to speak. I don't let them get to me. They're no big deals. I've learned to accept and I've learned to recognize and realize that it's not worth getting into. Um, that that you know my OCD tendencies have been put at bay. Thank the Lord for that, um, certainly. Um, because OCD is a sort of prison term. 
uh, it takes a block of your day when added in aggregate. And uh, a lot of us have been there, and I have certainly. Um, I showed a lot of classic symptoms of, of OCD. You know, I demonstrated a lot. Um, and I managed it for the most part, but medication definitely kicked in and helped. Uh, and your day can go on. Your day can go on. Um, it's a form of prison. Uh, it's a jail sentence suspended in time. All that time you spend fretting, wondering, inactively, and then getting actively involved and checking something and checking it again and checking it again just for total verification. Um, and it's maybe not even about safety, it's just checking things. Um, and, you know, it's total obsession. And that's what it is. So it can be managed. Uh, there are a lot of different therapies and approaches. Uh, medical therapy intervention worked with me. Um, and um, it's a real liberation, you know, a real liberation from that. Because you don't need it. You don't need it. You know, the time wasted could be up to an hour a day. That's a, you know, an hour is a good-sized chunk of time, you know. Um, we're always looking at the hour on the clock, right? It's like either 4 o'clock or it's 7 o'clock, you know, but it's, it's o'clock, it's of the hour. The hour is a real good unit to kind of break out your day with. I always go by the hour when I'm referring. I sort of have that built-in progression of the day, and I like it when it makes sense. If I haven't looked at the clock in a while and I kind of guess what the time is, I play a little game, and then if I look at the mantle clock on my wall in the living room, and right now it says 25 past um, 12, factoring in that the clock is about 10 to 13 minutes slow. So it's really already going on 1 o'clock. Um, and I look out the window on a sunny, brilliant, early November day, and I revel in the, the real glory of the day from my living room window. And I look at my, um, I look at my other room, um, sometimes I look, where are the cats? Um, I can see his tail. Uh, he's by the front door. Um, and, and he's almost in this room by a couple of feet. So I know where he is. And I know where she has been lately. So Kane's right over here. And then Lulu is in the kitchen. She likes it in the kitchen on the counter. She can stay there for hours, it seems. Um... She goes back and forth between that and where I can see her is good when she comes out on the buff to, onto the buffet uh, over in the corner of my dining room. I can always have a good view of her. Um, I always like to know where my cats are. I know they're generally either sleeping or whatever, um, and they're somewhere, um, but I always kind of have a good idea where they are. If I never really know where they are and I'm curious enough, um, I'll actually get up and actively look for them, and I can usually find them, you know. But she's been in the kitchen, so she greets me, and she's been staying around a little bit better longer for me to do stuff in the kitchen where she doesn't get nervous. Um, and so she stays on the counter and gives me a little bit of companionship, which I kind of like. And then he's usually uh, 
like he is now by the front door, uh, right in the sunbeam rays on the, reflected on the floor. It's nice for him. Um, he's got a few other spots strategic in the house. They have their spots. Uh, they like hard surfaces. My cats right now are in a hard surface mode. Um, my girl is strictly hard surface, um, a la the kitchen countertop, the buffet top, um, top hardwood counter of that. The table, the dining room table, uh, these are all hard surfaces and the floor. A lot of time spent on the floor um, with the kitties. And they just in there, and they get up and they have their naps, right? And and they can still sleep really well during the night. Cats have adapted over thousands of years to really go by our clock a lot. They don't give us grief at bedtime. I was reading a recent story. Cats actually, uh, they know that you're going to sleep, um, and they are aware and respect and give you space for it. Kind of an amazing kind of observation. Um, and the cat never ceases to amaze us. Our animals really don't ever cease to amaze us, you know? What is that? Where does the eagle get the power to lift his, his, his rather heavy body for a bird? Um, birds weigh nothing, typically. Um, but you pick up an eagle... It's got some weight to it, but it also has some mass to it. Uh, and it can get up there with its huge wing spread. It's really pretty good ratio and also a good size wing. It's, it's not a narrow wing. It's a very, it's really perfect. It's like the perfect animal. It's the perfect bird, the eagle. And it takes off over an icy pond, let's say. Um, and then you've got this eagle looking and he's looking for his prey because that's what eagles do. They look for their prey. Um, and then you maybe, he, I think he might spot a little, a little hawk. You know, maybe it's a falcon, but no, he knows it's a hawk and he might have a chance at it, but hawks are fast and um, they can sometimes get away. So maybe he spends time looking for smaller prey. You know, uh, it could be, it could be. Um, an eagle landing on your front lawn in, uh, in uh, Laguna Heights, California. Uh, probably unlikely, I would say. Um, it would be a sight. Uh, him picking up a small uh, yard bird of some sort. Um, and maybe this bird is sort of like, uh, it's a erratic uh, it's not really of that area. Maybe it got lost on its flight, and it happens all the time. Um, I'm sure there must be millions of examples of it, and and it's it's the bird really falling out of, and then and then it always seems to be one bird, right? And he's he's maybe it's a maybe it's a Carolina jay that we don't get around here. Um, we get the blue variety. Maybe this is a Canadian jay. Um, very popular, I mean, very probable, and has probably happened. Uh, and it's kind of cool to see, uh, to see a species that really doesn't belong in that environment, but is adapting um, pretty well, you know. Maybe he's adopted a family. I don't know how that works. 
Um, I don't know really the bird, the bird dynamics going on there. Um, uh, I think the the eagle soaring and the cat leaping and the dog jumping um, and the physical feats of animals, uh, their whole toolkit when it comes to survival. Uh, the lion's claws, the lion's fangs, and the the front the front canine teeth of the feline, uh, the front canine teeth of the canine, uh, the front uh, the front canine teeth uh, in the form of a deadly uh, poisonous snake, um, and so maybe it's you know maybe it's that um, maybe it's um, uh, the sheer size. Uh, overwhelming size of, of an animal like the moose, for example. Um, we can never get a real sense of how big these animals are until we really kind of like experience them firsthand. Um, but even from a distance, you can see a moose is a rather large animal. Um, and, uh, and it's larger than a horse, for example, quite larger. Moose are huge. Moose are just monumental animals. They are. Uh, just a quick drive away, if you live in southern New England, to drive up to Maine, and you are in moose country, and you'll see many examples up in northern New England of uh, moose encounters. And I've had, we've had pseudo-moose moose encounters. All good experiences and all really reverent of the time because it really is a magnificent animal. Um, the moose. Uh, it's got a funny name, but it's really a great animal, and it really is a very uh, unique to our kind of geography, too, in New England. It really is a unique kind of thing, the moose. The moose is Maine. Maine is known for a lot of things, um, but moose is like one of those. Um, yeah, it's up there with the Maine lobster. Uh, so the moose... Um, iconic um, and then you have uh, you have like state flags that a lot of state people really is not represented well on stationary let's say from the state correspondences to public it's the state flag is a beautiful flag it's an anchor um, with some with some wreathing, it's round, it's a square format, and it says hope. Um, it's nice, it's very, with the letters curving upward in an arch, hope. Um, and there's stars there. And it's really a great flag. It's a great symbol um, for Rhode Island, the state of Rhode Island, you know, hope. And it's a great motto. You know, um, it's it's a great motto. Um, I think we are always hopeful. We always have a pretty good outlook, Rhode Islanders, I would say. Um, we are usually pretty optimistic, but we're also kind of like a little bit cynical. Um, I'll give it that, and I'll say we're maybe a little bit, um, maybe a little bit of sarcasm in there, um, a little bit of satire. Uh, but it's all pretty healthy. It's all pretty healthy. 
um, is the dirty politics in Rhode Island. Well, Rhode Island is has got a little bit of a rep, uh, pretty heavy rep, um, uh, of being sort of a corrupt, a more apt to have some corruption in its governance, um, and that that's been sort of ongoing, and it might even still have that that issue um, that it has to always um, overcome. So we have good examples of well-run government, certainly in the state. We have great examples of, or not so great examples of bad governance in Rhode Island, bad decision-making, bad legislation, um, piss-poor outreach and communication, uh, not a proactive state, a reactionary state, uh, a, a on the books progressive state with a legacy of some progressive things that were always good and positive generally, because we are a democratic state, surprisingly out of that, um, but with the challenges that go along with maybe being too small, a la not enough critical mass. Um, probably a plaguing thing with Rhode Island, uh, yet having critical mass, which it does. It's a densely populated, one of the most densely populated areas in the country. And this is Rhode Island. And this is where we live. We live in the cities and towns of Rhode Island. Uh, We live in a township, maybe. We live in a uh, post-industrial city. Um, We have... Uh, repurposed mill buildings for now for residential apartments um, that's been going on for quite a long while now. Um, there were tax cuts in about 40 years ago. I would say about 40 years ago, we had a lot of repurposing, um, which which is always a crowd pleaser. Um, I lived in an apartment building that was a mill conversion, and it was wonderful to see these mills sort of kind of come back to life a little bit um, because they, they were, these were tax credits that gave builders more incentive uh, to do these kind of, um, these kind of apartments, um, to repurpose the buildings because they were, there was just big incentive to use these buildings again. Uh, not raise them. In fact, maybe play them up. Uh, maybe even make them better than they were originally. Um, these were all probably hardworking, um, so, uh, a almost, uh, well, not slave environment, but very harsh environment for, for the mill workers. Um, there's that long legacy of the overworked mill worker coming home weary from a day. You know, maybe he's having his first cigar of the day because he doesn't get any real breaks, you know. Uh, and to him, it is slave labor. He, he hates his job, but it was before we hate, could hate our job. We couldn't hate our job back then. What we had to do as far as our job was concerned simply was we had to do our job. It was expected of us. Uh, there were more, there was a peak of... of, of um, uh, civil groupings like unions um, that enhanced the whole spectrum of that um, back then. Um, it was groundbreaking achievements in the 
late teens and early 20s, there were riots. There was uh, wildcat strikes left and right in every major city um, and uh, in the United States. And these were all happening real time and everybody had to deal with it. And it does come back to the kitchen table drama, the kitchen table play, the kitchen table scene in the movie, pivotal. Usually where the, um, act, the actress that plays the supporting role might win in the Academy Award for him. It might be just particularly this kind of like kitchen scene. Uh, and I always picture the old style round refrigerators. I fix, picture a 40s, 50s kind of thing going on. Uh, the housewife with her apron, but I, uh, it goes deeper than that. It's like a, it's like a real, it was our whole ethos back then, our whole way of uh, experience. Everything was in the beginning of the real use of the kitchen, um, which now has become the most important room in our homes, right? Um, and it's like everybody meets in the kitchen. And I have a small galley-style kitchen, so I don't have that. But many people have their kitchen as their main room. And it's all well and good. Um, I actually like mixed-use room, where the room kitchen spills over into the living room, let's say. Uh, I like open floor plans. I don't really have that in my small bungalow. I've, I have the same walls that have always been here for the most part. Um, and, um, yeah, so we've got, uh, we've got the cat over by the, the, the door still, uh, and the other cat, um, came by the door over here, and Lulu over in the kitchen, and I can't see her from here where I'm sitting, and she's over in the kitchen, and she's probably just sitting there staring at nothing in real particular. Um, and, you know, it's like you say to yourself, what, what goes on in these little minds of theirs, you know, um, that they can really be okay and relatively content. I hope my cats are content. I, I got a good feeling my cats are pretty, pretty good uh, like that. Um, yeah. And, um, but, um, yeah, we're, we're getting ready for the holidays, we're getting ready for a little bit of um, decorating this year, maybe, and I would like to. Um, I'd like to get a small tabletop Christmas tree for my living room. Um, I brought the drum set down today and dusted the dust balls from where it was, uh, and now it's open over there. I left my bongos upstairs, and I like to play them uh, kind of in a ready fashion when I do play. Um, so everything looks good, uh, and it's about as open plan as I can right now. We're just waiting for the sort of whole cool thing about decorating, uh, for Christmas. It's kind of, kind of a cool thing. Uh, it's a great invention. Um, it's a huge industry, seasonally. Uh, we have stores dedicated to Christmas, um, Christmas tree stores is out of business, but they had a really good run. Uh, and actually, I couldn't understand why they went out of business because Christmas is a huge, huge time of year for for the retailers, you know, uh, in particular. 
Uh, we see all the Christmas ads now, you know, for better or worse. Uh, we have days that are colder than milder days are. Um, we still have leaves to rake in our backyard. Um, we don't want snow to go on it because then we will get a, develop a mindset because it's human nature to just say, it's too late, I can't get back there and pick up the leaves because it's already snowed on them. You know, they're all wet. And so you have all these reasons to not do something. And then so you struggle maybe. Uh, or maybe you struggle less than the next guy, but you still kind of, you know, you still kind of like are resisting that kind of um, uh, physical out, outlay of, uh, of, of crouched positions and doing awkward kind of really kind of backbreaking work in the backyard that is raking leaves. Unless you develop a mulching system with your lawnmower like I have. Um, I already started it. I plan on finishing it back there. Um, I don't care about getting all the leaves. That's a tough mindset to get in. Everybody wants to get everything as we go. We want to pick up every damn leaf. We don't want to have anything laying behind. And we pick it up and we go over the path maybe once, two, three times. And then we, we move on, but we, it takes us longer, you know. This way I can go and kind of like go pretty quickly through it. And I got a pretty good sized suburban Pawtucket yard um, back there. So I've got more to go, like by about two thirds, I would say. And they are thick carpet piles of leaves throughout. So, and I made a little bit of a dent by the house, but I gotta move out further back. So I got a little ways to go. I'm trying to get psyched up to do it. Today would actually be a real good day to do it. Um, but um, the weather's been really nice the last several days, thankfully. Uh, good day to get out and do these things. I'd like to get out and do my grass, get see my green of my grass again, just before the first snowfall.